that too. My name is Malcolm, and I have the privilege of leading the congregation here at Dundonald Elam. We don't take your presence tonight for granted. We know there are many things you could be doing. So thank you for choosing to be here. I want to take a few minutes to reflect with you on one of the most famous stories that the world has ever heard. It's found in the Bible. I guess this story goes by many names. It has really three main characters, each of whom have something that they contribute into it, and it takes place in two different locations. It's being painted by famous artists. If you go to the Hermitage in um, St. Petersburg tonight and look for Rembrandt's work, you will find a huge and beautiful, beautiful painting of the story that I'm about to tell you. If you go to Belfast Library and ask for the works of a man called Henri Nouon, this will be one of them. The story has been given various names, and I think it is prescient and powerful because it speaks into every generation and every context and every culture. Some people call it the story of the prodigal son. Some people call it the story of the elder brother. I prefer to call it the story of a yearning father because I think actually at the center of the story, that is the key character. And I think it speaks powerfully and profoundly into every generation and every culture for that reason. We live in the United Kingdom and in Northern Europe in the results of post-Second World War liberalism, which has raised a generation of women and men and boys and girls who have been stripped very often of any sense of worth or value and left denuded and alone very often because of an absence of a father. Many of you, like me, will have come from families where father figures are rather controversial, difficult, or challenging. Many of you will find days like today, once a year, extremely difficult. You'd like to close your eyes on the Saturday before Father's Day and waken up on the Monday after Father's Day. I understand that. I know what that feels like. And many can endure services or endure preaching who are Christians who love God the Father, who have a profound and deep affection for him and know that they are loved by him, but who find this day difficult. Many of you will come from blended families. There's nothing wrong with a blended family. There's nothing wrong with a family where a mum has to be both mum and dad or a dad has to be both mum and dad. Sometimes that's what happens with life. And very often, we Christians, if we're not careful, can end up sounding rather moralistic and condemning and, and, and slightly um, condescending when we talk about fathers and mothers and families. My Bible tells me, before I come to the passage that I want to read to you tonight, that every family on earth takes its identity and its name and its purpose from God. Ephesians chapter 4 makes very clear that God is the father from whom all families take their meaning, their significance, and their purpose. So if you are joining online because today has been too much for you, and I think that many will be, 
or you are here and today is a difficult day because of your own memories, perhaps your memories of failure in your own life or memories of failure by someone else or you are missing someone, then I pray that God by his spirit will do something profoundly beautiful in our midst this evening. I actually think he wants to. I'm feeling very, I always am nervous when I'm preaching. I might not sound nervous, but if you were to look inside me, you would see a very nervous human being, always. But I'm feeling quite nervous about tonight because I think God wants to do something very simple and also very profound and beautiful. So I'd like you to read with me this story, but to read it slowly and to allow it to sink into your soul. Maybe you know the words. If you are a Christian and you've read your Bible any length of time, you will. So you might want to close your eyes and listen to it. Don't fall asleep, though. It's in Luke chapter 15. And I'm going to read to you from verse 11 all the way through to the end of the chapter, which is verse 642. No, I'm only kidding. Which is verse 32. Luke chapter 11. I beg your pardon, Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. Actually, the language there is of someone who is sold into bonded slavery. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare. But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger 
and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years, I have been working like a slave for you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. Who is the center of this story? Some would argue that it is the younger brother who says to his dad, give me what's mine and I'm away. Squanders it, comes back and is restored. I remember 30 years ago, hearing a sermon, Gary Gibson will probably remember this as well, from a guy who was a pastor in Whitewell where I was converted called Norman Hobson. And every time Norman preached, he preached on the prodigal son. I think he had that sermon tucked away somewhere. And here's, I always remember it because it was profoundly, profoundly beautiful as a sermon. He said, this young man took himself off, let himself down, caught himself on, brought himself home. I remember those words because that is exactly what happens. Here's a young fella that takes himself off, lets himself down, catches himself on and brings himself home. And for many, that is the story. It's the younger brother's story. For others, it's the elder brother's story, which is picked up from verse 25. A man who is resentful, feels as if what he is due is being squandered on his younger brother. 
Feels as if somehow his father hasn't loved him the way he's loved his younger brother. How many of us, if we had the opportunity, would reflect on the damage that favoritism does in a family? On what happens when one brother or one sister feels as if they are more loved than another? Many of you carry those scars or have felt as if you have failed in this way in one way or another. And for many, that's one of the stories. That's one of the key aspects of this wonderful tale, and it certainly is. For some people, for those of you that are interested, the story is an interplay, not just between two people, but between two covenants, between Israel and between the church that Jesus is about to begin. And depending on what way you look at it, the elder brother could be Israel, resentful that Gentiles are brought into faith, or the elder brother could be the church that takes up the role and assumes that the younger brother has been cast away and will never be restored. I'm not sure about that, but certainly as an image, it helps. For me, the story is most definitely about the father. And there are a number of reasons for that. First of all, he is the consistent presence throughout verses 11 through to verse 32. But more importantly for me, if you read the other two stories that are recorded in Luke chapter 15, and remember that each of the gospel writers always brings their own account to something. They have a very particular reason for putting things the way they do. Then there are two other stories about lostness that are told here. In verses 1 to 7, there's a story of a sheep that is lost and a shepherd that goes to find it and rejoices greatly when he has found that lost sheep. The second story is the story of a bride who has a bridal crown. And in that bridal crown, it's told in verses 8 to 10, there are special coins. It was part of Jewish custom, Near Eastern custom at the time. And a bride, when they were married, would be presented to the groom and would have all of these coins in their bridal crown. And if one was missing, it was a significant moral and ethical and social mistake. And she loses a coin. And she is frantic with worry and anxiety until she finds it. In the story of the sheep, the center of attention is the shepherd looking for the lost sheep. In the story of the crime, the center of attention is the bride looking for the lost coin. In this story, the center of attention is a father looking for a lost son, yearning for them to come back. I don't have many observations to make about it, but I hope the ones that I do will be helpful to you. Here's the first one. He wouldn't have cared about the lostness of the boy if he didn't love him. Lost, most certainly, but loved. All around us, there are women and men who are lost. Many of them know their lostness but they do not know that they are loved. Some of them might be sitting here or watching online. The significance on all three stories is that 
each central figure, the shepherd, the bride, and the father, is not content until they find the thing that they have lost because it is so precious and important to them. I want to draw your attention for a moment to verses 21 and 22 and then verses 24 and 32 of the story. In verse 21, the son has returned to the father. We'll come to that in a moment. And he's petrified of what his father will say. So he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Listen to these beautiful words. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Then in verse 32, when the elder brother is angry at his father for the act of restoration, the father says to him, we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. I don't know if you've ever experienced separation in a family and then the return of the person who has been separated. When I was seven, one of my brothers left the family home. It's a long story, but cut short. He joined the Royal Marines, didn't like it, went absent without leave, left, and joined the French Foreign Legion. True story, I'm gonna write a book about it one day called Paddy Jest. <laughs> you probably don't get that joke, it doesn't matter, it was funny to me. About three months later, we got a letter from somebody called Richard Dondell. His handwriting was exactly the same as my brother's, which was extremely odd, very scraggly. So we knew who it was. And he told us that he had joined the French Foreign Legion, that he'd gone to Corsica, and that we may never see him again. About two months after that, the Royal Marines sent a box home to 84 Glenbian Avenue, where we lived, with all of my brother's belongings in it. It was about the size of a coffin. And I watched my mother and father fall apart as they opened the box of the boy that had just gone, a young man. I never forget it. About three years later, I was standing in our kitchen making a cup of tea. That seemed to my per be my perennial job. And my back our back door opened and my brother walked in. All right, he said. I had the teapot in my hand and dropped it. He came in, sat in the living room, and he always called, my mum and dad were called Olive and Jackie, but he called them Sadie and Jackie for some reason. Don't ask me why. And he said to my mum, all right, Sadie, all right, Jackie. And for a year, didn't explain what had happened. And I saw the ecstasy that a returned brother brought to our family. He did it again a couple of years later. To see somebody restored, to see somebody walk back into your life after you've lost them, isn't 
I, I can't begin to explain it to you. But I saw in my mum and in my dad something of the joy that I think I see in this father as he longs for his son to return simply because they loved my brother. Do you know how much you are loved? Do you know how much God yearns for you? On this Father's Day, do you know how much he cares about you? In this story, a Jewish story, this father breaks every social moray to welcome his son. Jewish fathers don't run. It's a sign of disrespect. Jewish fathers don't initiate forgiveness. It's a sign of giving in. Jewish fathers don't offer robes and sandals and rings without full and proper recompense having been made. There's a whole process that is required before those things are offered. But in this story, this father, when you read the words carefully, particularly from verse 21 forward, doesn't just go to the gate once, doesn't just go looking for one son. Do you notice that he goes looking for both? When the first one comes back, we're told that he was some distance away and his father saw him and ran to him and kissed him and embraced him and welcomed him home. The elders of that village or town would have been deeply offended at such an action. That man may well have been put out of the synagogue for it. You don't do that if you're a Jewish dad. It's the boy that has to be broken, not you. And yet, here he stands. What did he notice? Did he notice, did he know the way his son walked? From a distance, we're told that he saw him. He must have come every day. He must have walked to that point again and again and again. How many times did he walk home saying he's not there yet? But maybe tomorrow, maybe tomorrow. And then when he sees him, he's like a greyhound out of a trap. He gets to him and nothing and no one, no social order. No commandments from a religious group. No expectations of moral behavior. Nothing's going to stop this father getting to his boy. You know what that feels like if you're a parent. And he runs, but at the end of the story, the older son refuses to go in. So he doesn't do it once, he does it twice. And we're told that the father went out to the older brother. This father went out to the profligate and he went out to the Pharisee. He went out to the waster and he went out to the legalist. He went out to the person who had abandoned him and he went out to the person that resented him. But he went. Why? Well, the hint is in the language. Son, 
robes, embraces, kisses, shoes, rings, fatted calves, celebrations, because he loved them. Oh, he knew all I mentioned at the beginning of my message. Spent a lifetime exploring this text in a beautiful book entitled The Return of the Prodigal, A Story of Homecoming. I want to read to you something that he said. For most of my life, I have struggled to find God, to know God, to love God, I've tried hard to follow the guidelines of the spiritual life, pray always, work for others, read the scriptures, and to avoid the many temptations to dissipate myself. I have failed many times, but always tried again, even when I was close to despair. Now, I wonder whether I have sufficiently realized that during all this time, God has been trying to find me to know me and to love me. The question is not how can I find God, but how am I to let myself be found by him? The question is not how am I to know God, but how am I to let myself be known by God? And finally, the question is not how am I to love God, but how am I to let myself be loved by God? God, is looking into the distance for me, trying to find me, and longing to bring me home. That idea of home. This story has two different places in it. Home and a distant country. At the very beginning of the story, the young man says, give me what's mine. And we are told in verse 13 that he goes to live in a distant country. Compare those two ideas in your head for a moment. Here in this story. What is home and what is a distant country? Home is where we are loved and accepted. Home is where we can hear our Father's voice in safety and security. Or it should be. I realize it isn't for many people. It certainly wasn't for me. Home is where we are satisfied, fed, cared for, safe. Home is we, where we are welcomed. Home is where we are embraced. I wonder, those of you that have had children... What you do when your kids go away for a while to university or to a job or on honeymoon, 
<laughs> Our daughter comes back with her new husband tomorrow. I think she's bringing him back. What do you think the first thing I will say to her will be when she gets to our front door? Welcome home, Anna. It's the word you long to hear. We have just been away for a week. We were in Edinburgh and St Andrews doing various things. Nowhere's like your own bed, is it? Your mattress and your pillow and the feel of your sheet and the sound of your door and your own water tap and being able to sit in your own garden. Home's a place of safety and security. Home is what brought me back to Northern Ireland after 32 years away. I don't think I've ever told you the story of how that happened in the end. Every day, from I left in 1986, every day, I would get up and say to God, is it today? And then one day, just six or seven months before coming here, we were here back in Northern Ireland in a house that we own in the coast. And our daughter, Riona, asked us, could we go to um, the Seamus Heaney home place? It was actually called the Seamus Heaney Museum. I didn't realize it was called a home place because she was studying about A-level. And I love poetry. So we went to Balaghy, probably the first and only time I'll ever be in Balaghy, but that's another story. And we pulled up outside of it and above it, written in large words, were Seamus Heaney's home place, not Seamus Heaney's museum. And I fell apart because I knew it was time. This soil feels different under my feet. This atmosphere feels different to me. Maybe it's because I have been in exile for three decades and you always yearn for home when you've been away too long, don't you? But I had a deep and a profound sense of being called back home to this land, to you as a community, to these people. I've never been more alive than I am today. To be home, to be where you are supposed to be, it's a gift. And maybe your home place is something that you are searching for and you haven't found it yet. I pray you'll find it. But take a moment and compare home here to this distant land that this young fella goes off to. He demands that his father gives him everything and he leaves. And we're told that he squanders it in verse 14. In verse 16, we're told that he's left with nothing. In verse 15, we're told that he sells himself to sell or to feed pigs. For a Jew, there could be nothing lower. In verse 17, he must have lost himself somehow because we're told that when he came to himself. In verse 19, he's trying to work out what he's going to say to his father. So compare this. Home where we are loved and accepted. Home where we are we can hear God's voice. Home where we are satisfied. Home where we are welcomed. Home where we are embraced. A distant country that takes all that we have and it's not enough, that leaves us empty and alone, that forces us to deny who we are, that strips us of our identity, where we end up losing ourselves and we are less vulnerable, naked and alone with nothing. 
At home, we are people in a distant land. We are a commodity at home. We can hear our father far away. We can't hear his voice and we try to fill the space. At home, we are satisfied in a distant land. We're never satisfied. So we become addicted to sex or alcohol or money or drugs or relationships or power or position. But it's never enough. At home, we are welcomed in a distant country. We are always temporary. We're never settled at home. We are embraced in a distant country. We are isolated. How many of us live in a distant country? Oh, you may never miss a service. You may always be in church. But your soul is in a distant country. You're not satisfied. Or maybe you physically try to fill the void with anything and everything. And nothing works because nothing can, you see. Nothing ever, ever, ever can fill the void of home except not a place, but a person. This young man wasn't going back just to a place. He was going back to a person. Listen to his words. He didn't say, I'll go back to the farm or I'll go back to the house. What does he repeat again and again? I will go to my father. I'll speak to my father. I'll get back to my father. How many people online or in this room have lived your lives distant from a father and he is at the gate longing for you waiting to embrace you somehow in this young man's life he came to a fundamental and a simple conclusion in verse 18 he says I will get up and I will go to my father and I will say to him I have sinned against you and against heaven which is exactly what he says in verse 21. Christians can live in a distant country. Churchgoers can live in a distant country. Leaders can live in a distant country. I don't care who you are, online or here. You were never made for any distant country. Don't care how old you are. Don't care what you've done. You were made for home. And God is waiting for you. Looking on the horizon, he knows your gate. He knows the way you breathe. Ask any parent, how is it that you can be standing in a room full of children bawling and you can hear your child cry? Because you know your kids. He knows your cry. He knows your desperation. He knows your isolation. He knows how ashamed you feel of yourself. He knows how broken you feel. He knows how distant you feel. He knows how desperate you've become. But will you make the journey back home? Compare this man who left to this man who returned. His journey away from home with money and power and wealth reaches a far land, popular as long as he has stuff, arrogant, presumptuous. When we leave God, when we leave our purpose, when we leave our identity, when we leave our destiny, 
Everything promises us that we will be fulfilled. This sexual encounter will fulfill you. This job will fulfill you. This house will fulfill you. This money will fulfill you. This crack will fulfill you. This coke will fulfill you. This drug will fulfill you. This, this, this experience, this position, this education, this title, this set of friendships will fulfill you and they destroy us until we are left empty and desperate for home. And then think about the journey back. How slowly he must have walked, or quickly. What did he do as he saw his father running toward him, do you think? Did he think, I better run the other way? When, at what point... Do you think this young man realized his father was running to hug him rather than to kill him? Imagine it for a moment. The father sees him and takes off and he sees him running towards him. Imagine that moment of encounter and the offer of love and kindness and mercy received. The ring signifying Restoration, the shoes signifying a welcome, the clothes signifying security, the fattened calf signifying celebration. Show me here where this boy has to prove himself first. Show me where he has to list every mistake he's ever made. Here he comes, broken, empty, desperate, ready to say sorry. His father hears the sorry and embraces him immediately. You might think I have to prove to God that I can be trusted. I have to prove I've fallen so many times. There are tests I have to pass. No, the only, the only thing you have to do is be willing to be humble enough to say, I'm sorry. I need you. I've let you down. And you don't have to have backslidden for that to be the case. You could be a regular attender at church and be in this position. Now look at the elder brother for a minute. Angry, resentful, bitter. His story's picked up from verse 25. He has a sense of entitlement. He feels as if he's going to lose something. Maybe we can understand it a little bit. I've been left to carry the can. I've been left to sort everything out. You weren't here to make sure everything was going to get looked after. I had to sort it all out. But do you see how angry he is? Entitlement and mercy cannot live together. How many people become Christians and then feel entitled? And therefore will not forgive someone else, will not welcome someone else back, will not love someone else. When they seek to be restored, when we sense an anger and entitlement rising in us like this elder brother then we are led to denying the humanity of others and their worth. How could we deny somebody a place at a table that we only have because of grace? Do you hear how he describes the young man? This son of yours. Do you hear how the father describes the same person? No. This brother of yours.
If God calls somebody son or daughter, we dare not call them anything other than brother or sister. I think the older brother is angry, let down, bottled resentment, fear, feels as if he's being overlooked. He gets a calf, I get nothing. But listen to what the father says to him. Three things in verses 31, 32, and 33. You are always with me, son. Verse 31. All I have is yours. Verse 32. And this is your brother. Verse 33. You are always with me. Nothing's changed our relationship, son. The entrance of your brother doesn't diminish my love for you. That's assurance. All I have is yours. He's already had his inheritance. There's no more coming his way. Your inheritance is secure. This brother of yours is about restoration. Assurance, inheritance, and restoration. Do you notice how the story ends? If it was a symphony it would be a hanging note. (laughs) Because it doesn't say, and they all lived together happily ever after. There were three people had to make a decision. A father and two brothers. And we don't know what the decision was. This story ends with a son being accepted and an elder brother being offered hope, but we don't know whether he takes it or rejects it. And that's where my sermon ends. Because I can't make this choice for you. On Father's Day, can I invite you to stop asking, how do I love God? And start asking, how do I let myself be loved by God? Don't ask, how do I find God? You don't need to. He's here. Right now. But will you let yourself be found by him? How do I know God? Wrong question. How do I let myself be known by him? It isn't as if God doesn't know where you are and God doesn't love you and God can't find you. He's here. The door into your heart is not a handle that he can open. You must open it. And then see what happens. I am always moved by this story. I don't preach on it very often. And I'm particularly moved by the embrace. My son was dead, but is now alive. Was lost, but is now found. I don't need to go into my whole story with you. I was never embraced by my father. Never in my entire life. I don't know what it is to be embraced by an, an earthly father. I've never, I've never had it. 
I was never kissed by him. Not in kindness, anyway. Never. I kissed him once on the day that I buried him. But I have been embraced by a better father. I have had kisses lavished on my soul by someone who loves me. I have been given new clothes. Some people think I'm a bit flashy because I wear a ring on this finger. That's not why I wear the ring on this finger. This story is why I wear a ring on this finger. Because I am his. And he loves me. I have seen what living in a far country does. And I know what it means to be home. And tonight, in this room and around the world, I think some of you are longing for home. And God is at the gate looking for you. Shall we pray? The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is here in this room. on behalf of the Father, ready to flood your soul. I think some of you need to hear these words as you bow your heads. I am sorry when the church has let you down. I'm sorry when the church has felt more like an elder brother place than a home place. I'm sorry when leaders have hurt you. I think some of you feel like dirt on the bottom of a shoe because you have failed so many times. God is here by his grace and mercy to restore you, to forgive you, to welcome you home. I think some of you have never been embraced by him. Lord, it's been so long ago that you've forgotten. And his arms are open. Here. The band are going to come, and I want you just to sit where you are with your eyes closed. And we're going to sing a song gently. You're a good, good father.
And if during this song you need to respond to God, perhaps for the first time, asking him to forgive you and to bring you into his family, or maybe you need to be restored, you've failed, or maybe you just need to know his nearness. You don't have to stand up. But I'd love you to stand if you were able to do that. When I welcome the Holy Spirit, I'm not inviting someone to come who isn't already here. I'm acknowledging that he's here and asking him to open our hearts and help us to be ready to receive what he wants to give. Holy Spirit. Life-giving. Hope-restoring spirit. You are here and you are welcome. Move in every heart. In every life. Break through all of the defenses tonight. And bring comfort. Hope and grace to your people.